page 418. This is chapter 44 with Mahatma Gandhi at Vardha. And before we begin, I do just want to preface. Um, our Guru was quite an admirer of Gandhi's. In fact, he spoke uh, very freely about him and quite often about him in his lectures, in his writings while he was in the US. Um, so much so that it was said that there was a um, FBI agents would follow him around because they would wonder whether he's trying to incite revolution in the name of India because he often spoke about India's freedom and he spoke very admiringly of the fact that India's freedom is being sought through the principles of Sanatana Dharma and more specifically as we know through non-violent means. Um, one thing the master called him uh, Gandhiji the political saint and what he admired most about Gandhiji wasn't just that he had high ideals but that he had made all of his ideals practical which means he practiced them he lived them he went around and anything that he was telling others he first practiced himself and this was something that our guru really appreciated. There's a story, I don't know if you heard a little comical story of a mother who brings her child to Mahatma Gandhi and says to Gandhiji, can you tell my child not to eat sugar? And Gandhiji says, okay, come back after one week, <laughs> then I will tell him. So she doesn't say, you know, she's confused but goes and comes back after one week and after one week Mahatma Gandhi tells the child, don't eat sugar. And so the mother says, why did you have to wait for one week? He says, well, because I also eat sugar. So I had to <laughs> practice for a whole week not eating sugar before it was appropriate for me to tell this boy not to eat sugar. And so you see, that's the kind of, and this week mm -hmm. is practicality. You know, this is the affirmation we've been working on. This is the vibration we've been tuning into. Everything that we're trying to at least espouse, any ideal we hold, and it doesn't have to be non-violence, or it doesn't have to be Gandhiji's ideals, it doesn't even have to be Yoganandaji's ideals, whatever your, you think an ideal is, can you actually practice it and apply it in everything that you do? It's right or wrong what others will think. I'm sure many people, in fact, you know, Gandhiji has become quite a controversial subject. For the first, I remember growing up, it was just a given that we all love Gandhi. <laughs> but in the last 10, 20, whatever years, it's become more obvious that there are a lot of people who, uh, you know, don't appreciate what he did. And I'm sure they have their clear reasons. I'm sure they had, you know, they had different expectations. And this is always, expectations always get disappointed one way or the other. But the one thing nobody can say or point a finger at is that this man lived exactly what he preached and that has so much power you see that's the power that really brought about whatever changes not so much that oh non-violence is a good ideal a lot of people say non-violence is a good ideal a lot of people go around i mean we say all these things all the time you know we don't have a country <laughs> supporting every move we make no the power that emanated from a person who not just spoke about ideals, but lived in every fiber of their being those ideals, not always in the right way or the wrong way, we'll never know, but never compromising. That's practical, <laughs> because that's practicable. 
And uh, it's nice that we're on this chapter because more than other chapters, which are a little bit more of a, you know, especially the resurrection chapter, <laughs> I don't see that as a very practical chapter. That's like, wow, way beyond my head. But this one's a lot more grounded in somebody who brought about real change. I mean, real perceptible a change that affects billion people <laughs> and did it only through spiritual ideals. So let's tune into that and see what that might perhaps hold for us and what we might, not specifically what Gandhi did, but in our own lives find what is it that we could do that might at least help us build that same amount of power and energy in our being. Welcome to Vardha. Mahadev Desai, secretary to Mahatma Gandhi, greeted Miss Bletch, Mr. Wright, and myself with these cordial words and the gift of wreaths of Khadar, I guess Khadi. Our little group had just dismounted at the Vardha station on an early morning in August, glad to leave the dust and heat of the train. Consigning our luggage to a bullock cart, we entered an open motor car with Mr. Desai and his companions, Baba Sahib Deshmukh and Mr. Pingale. Those of you who have any sense of the history of that time, which very recently I have picked up on, I just read a biography of Gandhi, not too, you know, uh, just a, I don't know, a couple of months ago maybe. It was a nice long one. And it's just, now, now these names make sense to me, especially this man, Mahadev Desai, it must be said. He was uh, Gandhiji's secretary for decades, I don't know, 30 years, 40 years, for the longest period, and is said to perhaps be the only one who could change Gandhiji's mind. He was that close to him and so attuned and united to him. In this biography that I read, I was in fact oftentimes more impressed by Mahadev Desai than with Gandhiji himself. So you just, you see when, when you start living by certain, you know, ideals and principles, you also see the people that you attract. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes, a master said, you can judge a guru more by the disciples that are around him. And uh, reading Gandhiji's life and just seeing the people that he attracted and the high caliber and quality of these individuals around him gives you a clear vision of, you know, perhaps who that person was in the first place. A short drive over the muddy country roads brought us to Manganwadi, the ashram of India's political saint. Mr. Desai led us at once to the writing room where, cross-legged, sat Mahatma Gandhi, pen in one hand and a scrap of paper in the other. On his face, a vast, winning, warm-hearted smile. Welcome, he scribbled in Hindi, it was a Monday, his weekly day of silence. We have attuned ourselves to our weekly, <laughs> our Monday silence with Gandhiji, so that's a good, good sign. Though this was our first meeting, we beamed on each other affectionately. In 1925, Mahatma Gandhi had honoured the Ranchi school by a visit and had inscribed in its guest book a gracious tribute. That's nice, 1925. So this is 10 years Later. prior to this particular meeting that Gandhiji had visited Master's school in Ranchi. Of course, Master wasn't there at that time. He was in the US. <clears throat> I was thinking that 
This is so beautiful, and it says a lot already about Gandhi's personality and how committed he was to live what he set to do. If Monday was his day of silence, no matter who came to him, he didn't break that. And Yogananda wasn't just an ordinary man, and I'm sure that Gandhi could sense that. And of course, Yogananda didn't mind because he, he saw much more, but it shows that if I promised to myself to do something, um, I'm not going to break it easily, uh, no matter what comes, no matter who, no matter how important or that priority might be. Uh, I adhere myself to what I set into motion, and I'm not going to let anything or anyone to break that promise or that commitment or that resolution. And, and he said this was our first meeting, but he just didn't break that silence even to say hello or welcome Swamiji. He just welcome, gave Yogananda Ji the paper, and it, it says already a lot about Gandhi. Yeah. The tiny hundred pound saint radiated physical, mental, and spiritual health. His soft brown eyes shone with intelligence, sincerity, and discrimination. His, this statesman has matched his wits and emerged the victor in a thousand legal, social, and political battles. No other leader in the world has attained the secure niche in the hearts of his people that Gandhi occupies for India's unlettered millions. Their spontaneous tribute in his famous title, Mahatma, or Great Soul. For them alone, Gandhi confines his attire to the widely cartooned loincloth, symbol of his oneness with the downtrodden masses who can afford no more. In this biography of Gandhiji that I read, this was, it starts from the moment when he comes back from South Africa to India. And in South Africa, he had created quite a name for himself because he had uh, helped the, you know, there was the apartheid that was being practiced there, a lot of racial discrimination against Indians, against the blacks um, by, you know, the white uh, rulers of that nation. And so Gandhiji had created this entire movement. He had brought together all the different religions over there. They were all kind of fighting together non-violently in overcoming this uh, racial prejudice. And one of the things he did for that was he created a community. And he created a community where all of them lived together, served together, ate together, and acted outwardly together towards this one goal. So he began to start letting his practice, which was at that time he was a lawyer, and he was fairly successful. And he started letting his practice go and give more and more time to this in a revolution that he felt called to. And then at this time, Gandhi has no relationship with India. He left India as a very young boy, really, to study in London. He studied, he became, a, you know, got his whatever bar, he passed his bar exam there. He practiced law for a little while in England before he went to South Africa. So his relationship with India is just, you know, I mean, imagine if you leave when you're like 16, 17, and then you've just not come back at all. But India starts to call him, 
and he comes to India and people in India had already heard about him so they knew that this one man had created this revolution so there were already hundreds and thousands of people to receive him when he arrives with his wife and but you know at that time he's fully English I mean he wears a suit and boot and tie and I mean he's he's an English man more than he's Indian and that's been his reality for the most of his life he's he speaks English he doesn't speak the local language as much I mean, he's Gujarati, so he speaks his language. But that's his kind of the vibration that he shares is still of a cultured, so-called English British gentleman. When he comes to India, he meets his, he had a political guru, I don't remember his name, I think Gokhale, a Maharashtrian politician. And he says to him, I feel like I want to get involved in India and I want to bring about, you know, I want to see how I can participate in the freedom struggle. And the one thing that his guru says to him, his political mentor says to him, he says, don't do or say anything until you have spent an entire year traveling across India. And that's what Gandhi, he takes that to heart and he starts to travel in the localist of, in the lowest of, in the third classes of everything. And he realizes that's true until I don't know the people I will never be able to understand what it is that they need. And that's the transition that takes place then from him wearing his suit and boot. And by the end of the year, he ends up then only with his loincloth because he realizes that's the most that most Indians have. That's as far as most Indians can afford to wear. And he says, in order to be a, you know, create a revolution for the people, we have to become like the people. And that was another beautiful, you know, just again, for each of us, you know, sometimes we feel compelled to bring about change or say certain things or want certain things to be a certain way. But this is, I, when I read this, I said, oh, that's a nice way to look at it. Spend some time first just getting to know who are these people that you are trying to change or trying to better, or, you know, whatever, create a circumstance for. And then first see if whether you actually relate to them at all or not. Because the political scene in India at that time was the Congress party, which was really the only established party. It was of, you know, upper class intellectuals. They were all English educated, you know, been not even studied in India. Their language was entirely, they had no relationship with the masses. They just wanted, you know, it was more an intellectual exercise of India should be free and we should be the ones governing India because we know what's best. But they, to a certain degree, were had the exact same consciousness or the exact same educational upbringing as the British counterparts. So it's not like they were vastly different in what they thought the country needed. And it was only in the introduction of Gandhi in their midst that then the very nature, then a lot of middle class people came in and very little by little, a lot of grassroots people came into the political scene. Up till then, politics was entirely a philosophical debate society of sorts, where I think India should be governed this way. And no, what do you think? And then it was just people talking amongst each other and feeling very good about it until Gandhi kind of comes in and actually does something. So that's another interesting concept for us to tune into in anything that we're about to do. You know, like if you're trying to change your children, just first don't say anything, spend some time with them 
again, we come back to Nita's little exercise that we did, you know, how to relate to people. And he says, first, what was his thing? First was observe, yes, no? Yes. Just observe them. And that's what, and to a certain degree, that's what Gandhiji was doing. He was just observing. Then he said, what was his, like, come, come in and wait for them to let you in or something. Yeah. You know, first observe, don't get, and then you wait for them to open a door to let you in. And then perhaps after you know exactly where they are from your observation, from where they have let you in, then perhaps would be a time to suggest something. The ashram residents are wholly at your disposal. Please call on them for any service. With characteristic courtesy, the Mahatma handed me this hastily written note. As Mr. Desai led our party from the writing room toward the guest house. Our guide led us through orchards and flowering fields to a tiled roof building with latticed windows. A front yard well, 25 feet across, was used. Mr. Desai said, for watering the stock. Nearby stood a revolving cement wheel for threshing rice. We're getting a little scene of what it was back then. Water was drawn from the well. There's this large stone <clears throat> to thresh the rice on, which is you <laughs> beat the rice on the stone and you let the <laughs> little grains start separating. Not a very... Uh, complicated process. Each of our small bedrooms proved to contain only the irreducible minimum, a bed handmade of rope. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> That's what the room has. <laughs> I was thinking about these two Americans for them suddenly <laughs> to come into this setting and they yeah. have a bed and it's made of just yeah. rope. I remember when we used to go to our village, my mom's parents, my grandfather was quite a Gandhian and uh, followed his ideals quite, uh, I would say, strictly a little bit. But going to our village, it was exactly the same. <laughs> you were the charpai, you know, just that bed with the rope. Oh boy, did it hurt so much. Every morning you woke up and it left all these lines on your body. So yeah, that's what they're getting. The whitewashed kitchen boasted a faucet in one corner and a fire pit for cooking in another. Simple Arcadian sounds reached our ears, the cries of crows and sparrows, the lowing of cattle, and the rap of chisels being used to chip stones. Observing Mr. Wright's travel diary, Mr. Desai opened a page and wrote on it a list of Satyagraha vows taken by all the Mahatma's strict followers called Satyagrahis. So this is what Mr. Desai writes in the diary. Non-violence, truth, non-stealing, celibacy, non-possession, body labor, control of the palate, fearlessness, equal respect for all religions, Swadeshi, which means the use of home manufactured stuff, Freedom from untouchability. These 11 should be observed as vows in a spirit of humility. So these are the five vows that Gandhiji expected or asked. But in his case, he was quite also strict about this. He expected his followers, those at least who espoused to be his closest, to follow these 11 vows strictly. 
Li. And we can see the first five vows are the yamas. Yeah. Non-violence, truth, non-stealing, celibacy, non-possession. And then the next six are variations, you can say, on other such things. You want to say anything about these vows? No, you can't start. I just love the fact that he brought this into politics. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I can't say I wish, <laughs> but it would be um, fantastic if our politicians, especially those representing India and the culture and the tradition and the depth that India has to offer to the world, to the world could, I don't know, be, be taught or be um, or, or influence them by by representing um, politics through these principles and and become like the ambassadors, uh, ambassadors for for these yamas and niyamas. I think that's the true success yeah. of any kind, but in politics. <laughs> I mean, if, if we could have our politicians around the world, but especially Indians, just to, to represent in what they truly believe. I think in every heart of any Indian, I know they know this and they want to live up to this and, and they are striving to practice this and for their children to practice this, but it's very hard. But thank God we had Gandhi to show us a little bit the way of how to do it. And that it's possible, you know, because that's the harder part. Mm -hmm. Most people would say this is not practical. <laughs> but you have somebody who showed it, like, well, it could be practiced. Mm -hmm. It just takes a lot of effort. <laughs> that's, you know, for us, practicality means, oh, it'll take too much, so it's not practical. But no, in fact, it's very practical. A lot of these make sense, but I like especially um, body labor as one of the vows, which is nice, which means seva, but not just seva, you know, it means get yourself involved. And for them, of course, this body labor, he expected them to do, you know, clean out the latrines and I mean, just like really heavy stuff. And both he and his wife were, you know, first in doing these things. Just the dirtiest of work. Idea being that there should be no concepts of concept of servants in our lives. You know, there should be no no nobody else kind of doing some of the work that we can do ourselves. Now, on another level, practically speaking, that's not necessarily true in every setting, especially in today's certain you know aspects of our lives. We don't live the slow-paced everything in within the same reality anymore back when you were in villages when life was just okay we go to our you know kate do our little thing we're back uh, that's more or less the outward expression of our work and then everything else took place at home it was something that was more easy to do but at least the consciousness of body labor that every day i will do something whether it's cleaning something out whether it's gardening and watering something something that will involve my body in simple tasks. Um, the other one is fearlessness, which I like that he's put that as a vow, uh, especially because they're practicing non-violence, you see. When non-violence meets violence, <laughs> you get scared. <laughs> you know, I mean, these people had to 
put themselves before the lathis. That was their, that was how they expressed fearlessness, is that they need to walk into the police or the army or whatever and actually get beaten because that was kind of their uh, test of whether they could live non-violence, not just that they wouldn't hit back, but here, while you are getting beaten, while we're getting beaten by the, by the world, by our karma, by other people's, you know, harmful and harsh words, where do we, where are we here? And this was a test that he expected again, all of his true followers, not everybody could live up to them. These are difficult as we can see. But uh, he just, he gave a lot of thought to it. You know, these aren't just something that he picked up out of a book. He's like, oh, Patanjali says, yamas are good, so let's just make these the vows. No, he gave a lot of thought to what's the, what are the issues that are going to come up? And we're going to make sure that these become vows that people take. And again, even Patanjali said, no, the great vows. It's just so important to be able to do that, is to say, I will practice this and to say it. And to kind of almost, you can say, sign on the dotted line as a contract with the universe. And then it makes you feel <clears throat> that all these vows, um, it's difficult to practice it alone. Mm. So when you have a group of people that believe in the same principles and are fighting for the same cause, it, it, it's easier and we inspire one another and encourage one another and, and almost vibrationally my courage gets transferred to the other persons next to me and we keep exchanging that uh, vibration of fearlessness and truthfulness and non-violence. And I think it's important when we um, set our mind to practice something, to, to uplift ourselves, to just, just join those like-minded people. And nowadays, I think one of the things that the world is offering more than anything else is support because all of us are finding our tribe, you know, vibrationally, what we resonate with and, and knowing that there is a space, a place, a group of people that vibrationally resonate where I am right now and, and I can practice with them and we can encourage one another. So, so for me, um, what Gandhi brought was also a platform where people could practice at the highest these ideals, not just by themselves. He was like almost um, having an open invitation. If you believe in this, you have to fight for it. And this is the way to go about it. He, he created a very, like almost a structure of how to go about it, spiritually speaking, of course. but. But as a group, as, as soldiers defending Sanatana Dharma, and pretty similar to Krishna and Arjuna, like we, we just need to fight for this. If if this is right, if this is what we believe, uh, sometimes we will need to be willing even to die for it, mm. for a principle, for a cause.
three years of your life gone in prison. I mean, so, and then when they came out of prison, <laughs> they did the exact same thing. And you go, oh boy, <laughs> now I've learned my lesson. I'm not going to do that again. No, I'm back at it once again. And we don't have that opportunity, do we? We just like, we just get to talk, unfortunately. I mean, we are struggling with waking up in the morning and show up for the morning meditation. As Our simple, battles are much higher than their battles were. As simple as that. I'm like, oh. But, but I mean, I love the fact that, that this is challenging. Hmm. You know, the freedom doesn't come to us easily. You know, it has to be challenging challenging mm -hmm. challenges and, and and Gandhi I think he was a man of he he was always challenging people <laughs> yeah. and, and the system and the government and the country and those who really wanted to follow him I mean you had to have a degree of courage to be part of the Gandhi <laughs> team because that man didn't ask just the minimum of you. He, he asked pretty much your entire being. I and mean, we'll see also about his wife. It's like, oh my God, <laughs> I was yesterday. Like, you had to have courage to yeah. be by his side. Now I'm reading a biography of somebody on the complete opposite end of, spe of the spectrum. I'm reading a biography of Hitler's. <laughs> because I was curious after Gandhi, I was curious, you know, like, what other revolution has happened, but on a very different level. And as I'm reading these vows, his vows were exactly the opposite. <laughs> Violence, lie as much as you possibly can, take whatever you don't have, <laughs> you know, no celibacy for sure, which means no control of your senses at all. You know, um, here it says equal rights for all religions. And for him, it was you know, the German people are the most superior race in the entire world, and so therefore they must take. And you just see how both sides are magnetic, aren't they? Both sides have power. And both sides influenced and, you know, really drove two nations in two different directions. But uh, Gandhi's way was definitely a lot harder. Whereas Hitler's way was, to a certain degree, so much easier because you just had to blame the others. And then since you're blaming the others, you find somebody who's at fault. And now all you have to do is beat them to death and then you've won. But you just see how both ends of the spectrum and what's scary today is that you see a lot of that now prevalent in today's politics. Violence, lying, we are better than others, other religions, we are better than other communities, we are better than whoever else. You know, non-stealing the Haini, steal, take, coerce, mm -hmm. no fearlessness, but create fear in others. I mean, and you could just see that while Hitler may have taken that to its absolute highest expression, um, that's really the most prevalent quality in politics or in any government guiding and leading people today. So... It's going to be an interesting thing to see. And, and you see also people getting caught up in it. You see people getting very hysterical about these ideas. Like, that's right. We are better than everybody else. Yeah, that's right. Those are the people who've created all the problems. Because I've never created a problem in my life. <laughs> so it has to be them. 
and so on and so forth. And we are now moving in quite the opposite direction. And history has shown us that this has happened in the past and it has also shown that it has worked in the past. And so people are thinking, you know, why not? Because that is so much easier. So it will be an interesting time for us moving forward. And perhaps our time will come to actually live these teachings in a, in a more real way. And that, that, that challenge that we're right now thinking isn't ours to deal with. Perhaps I mean, that will and come. And the truth is like we can start winning our own little battles daily because we need to start from somewhere practicing these teachings. We can just not from one day to the next suddenly, you know, not be afraid about death and leaving our loved ones behind because it's, it's, it's a big process, you know, we need to prepare for it. And I, and I love the fact that we can challenge ourselves daily. I mean, this week some of us are challenging ourselves to practice actually these principles, these yamas, with very little things, you know, non-stealing, just giving something away or not being attached, you know, your possession, just give something every day. I mean, we need to start practicing this from where we are and bit by bit taking steps to when life really <laughs> brings to us a big war. And doesn't need to be outward, but an inner war where, war where we need to just fight against delusion and negativity and all this, you know, we will be ready for it. So, so find your ways, you know, to practice this, to challenge yourself. You need to go to bed every night knowing that I have challenged myself with something and, and I did it. Or, or I have breakthrough something, or, or I have, I don't know, overcome something. I mean, every single day, we, we should have that feeling. Like, even if it has been a very tiny thing, otherwise it's, it's, going, to, it's going to take a long time. That's all. So why not to start today? <laughs> At lunch, the Mahatma ate chapatis, boiled beets, some raw vegetables, and oranges. On the side of his plate was a large lump of very bitter neem leaves, a notable blood cleanser. With his spoon, he separated a portion and placed it on my dish. I bolted it down with water, remembering childhood days when mother had forced me to swallow the disagreeable dose. Gandhi, however, bit by bit, was eating the neem paste with as much relish as if it had been a delicious sweetmeat. In this trifling incident, I noted the Mahatma's ability to detach his mind from the senses at will. I recall the famous appendectomy performed on him some years ago. Refusing anesthetics, the saint had chatted cheerfully with his disciples throughout the operation, his infectious smile revealing his unawareness of pain. So this is again something that Gandhiji kind of got to. This is one of the reasons he was very particular about celibacy. In you know, It was just this, don't let your energy go anywhere that you are not consciously directing it and hold all your life force uh, kind of in your own hand, in the palms of your own hand. And that's where you get to 
you know, detach yourself from the senses little by little through, in his case, years of practice. And that's a wonderful, you know, thought for us as well, because you can see it's not just that Gandhi was like, let's free India and let's just do... No, he was more particular about who he was becoming in the process. That was really his, you can say, almost key. He has this book that maybe some of you read, My Experiments with Truth. And in that, you know, he was always... He'd test out something on himself, and then he'd see if he can apply that in a practical level with other people. Then he'd test something, and he was constantly testing and discarding and testing and accepting and testing. And, you know, so if he held a certain viewpoint for two years, but somebody shows him that that viewpoint was no longer valid or this is a better way, he'd immediately let it go and he'd take on, you know. For him, it was always what is true, my experiments with truth. And here he learned that the ability to detach from your senses is going to be a major part. And so, you know, he in that sense was feeling no pain in many of these realities that we would consider suffering and painful. Uh, you know, Yoganandaji here, of course, talks about him like, oh, I just chewed these neem leaves and I just, you know, bolted it down with water as if he could not detach his own senses. But as a young boy, somebody challenged him to eat. And this is going to be a little yucky, but putrefied rice that had been sitting for, I don't know, weeks or days somewhere, and it's just gotten this rice that had gotten completely rotten. And when he was talking about this ability to detach his senses, somebody challenges him to eat that. And he takes it, he puts his hand in it, and he begins to eat it. And with absolutely no, <laughs> no sense that what he's eating is in this, could be just as well eating your, you know, <laughs> lunch that your mother prepared for you and that's what it takes this ability to detach your senses because it's not about food or it's not it's eventually about learning to see life both the good and the bad with that even-minded and cheerful state so he says it's not that gandhi was eating it this way you know he was relishing both that which was yummy and that which wasn't and that's the key element here, that you enjoy it all with the joy of God. And when he says also no, that through that operation, he wasn't aware. aware. You know, it's like, it's like almost he developed already the city of being above body consciousness. You know, like he, he wasn't able to identify himself or to feel physical pain anymore almost like that awareness is just you know taking away I mean from us I just have like a little tiny thing here on my nail and I'm just like since last three days it's just like bothering me so much I'm trying not to think about it but it's just this tiny tiny little thing that you know it just brings my attention there I mean, many times throughout the day and here he is you know heart surgery, I mean like an appendix, appendix and unaware of the physical pain. So, so once we get to practice all this, you know, the, our awareness shifts from physical pain, from disappointments, from all those feelings that we go through, they are just somehow get removed from our awareness and we are not able to relate anymore to ourselves, to other people, to the situations at that level and, wow, unaware of pain. Hmm. 
The afternoon brought an opportunity for a chat with Gandhi's noted disciple, daughter of an English admiral, Miss Madeline Slade, now called Mirabai. Her strong, calm face lit with enthusiasm as she told me in flawless Hindi of her daily activities. Narayani, she speaks Hindi. I know. Mm, <laughs> I know my sentence, one of them. <laughs> Rural reconstruction work is rewarding. A group of us go every morning at five o'clock to serve the nearby villagers and teach them simple hygiene. We make it a point to clean their latrines and their mud-thatched huts. The villagers are illiterate. They cannot be educated except by example. Isn't that beautiful? Mm -hmm. You don't go there and say, Chalo, blackboard nikala. <laughs> ye hygiene ke liye ye karna chahiye. Latrine ko aise saaf karte hai. <laughs> That's how we would say, let's go and teach these people some hygiene and understanding. We'd give them a nice bhashan, a nice class. And then we'll come back very happy that we've made a huge difference in the world today. But these people would go clean their latrines, <laughs> clean their huts, fix whatever issues that they were going through, and by example, show this is what needs to be done. And again, practicality, right? If it's practical, I can do it, therefore you can do it. And that's the only way to actually share anything of any value with somebody. Do it in front of them and do it over and over and over again until somewhere, somehow, a person's consciousness accepts that and takes that on. That's what the great masters come to. Mm -hmm. They have to do it over and over. The masters don't need the gurus, yeah. but they will have the gurus just to show us. They don't need to meditate, but they'll meditate every day just to show us. They don't need to, you know, go through the painstaking process of putting out will and having a vision and earn, then money. earn the money and finding support. They don't have to do any of that because, boy, I mean, they've done that already for so many incarnations. They've earned the freedom never to do that again. Yet they come and do it again and again, no matter how many times. Because the only way we will learn is through example. And uh, it's lovely that that's... And again, you know, just these are the subtle, uh, powerful uh, experiences that the people had in those days was this learning, understanding so clearly. If it's not by example, it's not going to work. And that's what Gandhi expected of those people who were around him. And he expected of himself. He set the example every morning by doing exactly what he asked the others to do as well. I looked in admiration at this high-born English woman whose true Christian humility enables her to do the scavengering work usually performed only by untouchables. I came to India in 1925, she told me. In this land, I feel that I have come back home. Now I would never be willing to return to my old life and old interests. I'm sure you can relate to that. Mm -hmm, yeah. <laughs> Would you go back? No. <laughs> Unless that my guru <laughs> says, go, I will go anywhere. That so far, so good. <laughs> we discussed America for a while. And I, and I have always 
I am always pleased and amazed, she said, to see the deep interest in spiritual subjects exhibited by the many Americans who visit India. This is a, one of the reasons Master went to America, more specifically, is, you know, Babaji said, right now, that is where there are a lot of saints waiting to be awakened. We don't think about it that way. We, we like to think all the saints are in India. <laughs> that they, might, they can't be anywhere else except here. But Babaji thought differently, and one of the reasons Master went there was specifically to awaken those spiritual sleeping seeds in that country. We're almost at the end, but I want to end with this last tiny little paragraph, which said, Mirabai's hands were soon busy at the charka, which is the spinning wheel, omnipresent in all the ashram rooms, and indeed, due to the Mahatma, omnipresent, omnipresent throughout rural India. And I was just thinking, because um, even in the biography that I read, you know, Gandhi had a quota. He always had, like, every day I'm going to spin... I don't know how many meters of uh, yarn. And wherever we, he was, at the, in prison, when he was fasting, when he was like at his deathbed, when he was, no matter where he was, he was at the wheel when he wasn't doing anything else. Or even when people came to see him, if he had his quota that he had to finish, he was at his wheel. And I was thinking like, we have an equivalent today as well, is that we're at our phones. <laughs> <laughs> No matter what's going on, we're at our phones. We have a quota of how many likes we have to give on social media and a quota of how many people's lives we have to look into. And we have a quota of all the things that we create. And we're at our phone all the time. And these people were at the spinning wheel all the time. And I was just thinking about the contrast of our lives. And it would be worth finding something similar that could keep us busy, keep our hands busy, keep our minds busy, and not attract us so much to the phone. And I don't know what the answer is, but it would be worth tuning into oh, something yeah. that could be, you know, a simple thing to keep. I mean, one nice thing is to have your japa mala and stay busy with the japa. But anything, something practical also. Yeah, something that you can use your hands. Yeah, it'd be nice you to. You know, something that involves your hands, your heart, your mind. Mm -hmm. You know, something that you... Yeah, when you have a little time. To, go to that instead but you know it was a nice a nice thought mm -hmm. i was thinking about gandhi not just talking about the charka from the perspective of oh we should create but i think it was also a means to keep people busy mm -hmm. you know it was a means to just keep them engaged otherwise we sit what do we do they didn't have phones but they also had social network <laughs> which was the gossip network you talk about each other i mean it's just like when we are idle that's generally where our mind goes goes to circumstances, people, we play out old conversations, you know, just, and one of the reasons why the mobile phone is such a popular thing is it gives us the opportunity not to deal with it ourselves, and so we get to kind of deal with other people and say, oh, this is a pretty dress, or oh, what is this person wearing? <laughs> so let's see what our charkha can be, if we can come up with something, it would be nice to come up with something that all of us can say, okay, this is our quota for the day. You know, and all of us can pool whatever is created. Maybe the charka, maybe we have to just learn how to spin yarn, who knows. Could be a fun experiment to tune into and see what can we create that is something all of us are creating together and will keep both our hands and our minds busy.
I think that's where perhaps hobbies come into the picture, something that we are good at or we want to learn or perhaps to learn a new language or learn a new instrument or, or something that um, needs both, a little bit of challenge, a little bit of creativity, a little bit of you know, heart into it, something that, that we create. Uh, recently, I'm enjoying a lot about the, the flowers and the gardening and nature. It's just, just something that helps me to keep my mind a little bit more detached from especially social media. That's another thing that I have um, challenged myself lately, like, you know, at least on our own personal <laughs> Instagram account, which is want to detach a little bit from that and give that energy somewhere else or to something else or to somebody else that needs that energy. And I think you need to find your own too. And, and those things that you are indulging more in and off, just, just you know, develop the self-mastery and just redirect a little bit that energy to something or somewhere else. I think that's, yeah, it's actually very important.